0: All right. Please open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter one. Um, while you're turning there, let me just say um, because uh, Dr. Bob and Miss Carol's anniversary is early January, I, I've since I've been here, I usually get to preach the first Sunday of the year, which is a fun. It's a fun uh, time to preach, and you know, there's lots of uh, pastors. You, you hear lots of interesting kind of sermons that come out on the first sermon of the new year, like. You know, new year, new you for a new year, and stuff like that. Uh, we're not doing that today. Uh, so last year, I, I preached on uh, Genesis three, and we talked about the fall and the effects of the fall, which we still feel today. And so I was kind of thinking about that again, and just thought let's let's go let's do it backwards and go back even further and talk about creation a little bit. And so this morning, uh, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Genesis chapter one, <clears throat> um, and I am going to read all of Genesis one. Uh, it's a big chunk, so I just ask you to bear with me, please. This is God's word in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day and God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were above the, under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. and let them be let there, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and god made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and a lesser right, light to rule the night and the stars and god set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and god saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day and god said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him once again ask him for his help. Gracious Father, Lord, as you spoke so long ago, let there be light. We ask now that you would uh, illuminate this text, that you would shine your light, the light of your truth on our hearts, that you would teach us this morning, Lord. We ask that you would show us... Uh, yourself in, in these words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, when I was in ninth grade, I was taking an art class in my high school, and I was assigned to write a paper on Vincent van Gogh. Didn't know anything about vincent van gogh i didn 't care anything about Vincent van Gogh. I just wanted to write my paper and get my grade. but as I was stu- researching this and studying and, and looking at all these Vincent van Gogh paintings, I really began to like this guy 's art you know I really began to like all these sort of vistas and, and uh, you know, so much so that I remember I, did, I got a book for Christmas one year of all these Vincent van Gogh paintings, and I even had you know, one of his most famous paintings a Starry Night. I had that hanging on my wall later in high school in my bedroom. So I really got to appreciate this guy's work, and it's interesting as I was kind of learning about him and studying about this guy. Van Gogh was a very troubled guy, right? He had some emotional, some mental problems. Uh, You know, he cut off his ear at one point, which is pretty odd. Uh, He eventually, eventually committed suicide. It was a very sad life, actually. Um, and it's, it's hard sometimes to kind of look at his work without kind of thinking about that, and kind of thinking about uh, you know what he might have been emotionally and mentally kind of going through as as he was creating his paintings and things. And I noticed as I was reading some works, some of his, I was reading some critics sort of discussing his work. They would talk about how his like broche. His brushstroke changed throughout his life, you know, that as he got near to the end of his life, that he's, his, he had these really wild sort of broad, you know, uh, brushstrokes, almost like a madman's, you know, some of the critics would say. It's um, still very beautiful art, but just a very interesting, kind of interesting to watch his work kind of change as we assume his, you know, mental state was sort of deteriorating as, as well. And so, I'm no art critic, okay? I'm not the son of an art critic. I don't know anything about art criticism, all right? But um, I just know that I liked his paintings, and so that's, that's kind of what interested me. But what I kind of learned from doing that paper um, is that it's possible to look at an artist's work, whether, whether it's Van Gogh or Picasso or whether it's some other art form, literature or something, to look at an artist's work and to, for that to reveal something about the artist. Uh, that we can look at an artist's work, we can study it, and we can learn something. We can better understand the artist who made that. And we can say, say the same thing about the universe in which we live. Uh, you know, closely studying this universe, closely studying the world around us, tells us a great deal about the God who created it. Uh, there's a sense in which studying creation is, is almost a study of God's attributes because uh, creation, creation so clearly points us to the characteristics of its creator. And Paul affirms this in Romans chapter 1 when he notes that um, uh, no one will ever be able to say, I didn't know that God existed because God's, uh, God's existence is clearly seen in the world around us. Paul writes this in Romans 1.20. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So God's existence is clearly displayed in the things that have been made. Uh, So when we consider the design and the artistry and the beauty of the creation, it tells us quite a bit about this designer, this artist, this creator who is behind it. And it is really hard to overstate how important creation is uh, to Christianity. Uh, Usually when we talk about redemptive history, when theologians talk about redemptive history, they talk about four main events. They talk about creation, they talk about fall when sin entered the world, they talk about redemption, which is when Jesus came and, and died uh, died for our sins and then rose again from the grave. And they talk about consummation, which is when Christ returns to gather his church um, and his glorified church is in heaven with him for eternity. So those are kind of the four major events of redemptive history. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So creation, it made the list, okay? So it's pretty it's a pretty important. It's hard to really overstate kind of how important this is. Um Francis Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, who is an apologist and theologian, once said that if he had an hour to talk to someone on an airplane about about the gospel, about Christianity, that he would spend a majority of that time talking about Genesis one through three. And that might seem kind of odd, you know? Why would he spend majority of the time talking about the first three chapters of the Bible? Why wouldn't he go straight to you know the Gospels and, and talk about Jesus? But I think the reason behind that is clear. That What we believe about God and what we believe about humanity and about the world around us—those things are so fundamental. Those things are so essential and important that if we don't have sort of a—if we don't—if a person is wrong on those ideas, then the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to make a lot of sense to them. If they don't—if they don't understand that there is a good God who made everything and that sin has entered the world and that our biggest problem as human beings is that we're sinners, that we need a Savior. If they don't understand that, uh, then the gospel is not going to hit them with uh, a sense of urgency. They're not going to see their need for the gospel. They're not going to see their need for a savior. And so, you see, creation is where we can really go to kind of to learn the fundamentals. The fundamentals about God, about humanity, about the world. And so that's what we're after this morning. Uh, we're asking, what does creation, what, is, what do we learn from Genesis 1 about God? Uh, and so, creation points us to many things about God. This morning, we're just going to look at three things. Uh, We're going to see that creation points us to God's sovereignty, God's beauty, and God's love. So first, let's look at creation pointing us to God's sovereignty. Um, As you read over the description of creation in Genesis 1, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to read the whole passage this morning, because I feel as we there's a lot of repetition. And the thing that kind of hits you over the head over and over and over again, I think, is the power of God, right? That God says, let there be this... And almost in every day of the almost every day of Creation Week is followed by, "And it was so," that God said it, and it was so, uh, that God spoke it, and it was so. Uh, that you know, God seems to create all things uh, in a short period of time, and it seems to be very little. It seems to be a very small challenge for him, right? It doesn't seem that he's uh, struggling to do this, but it seems like a very easy thing for him. Uh, but we read it over and over again. In verse three, and God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. Uh, in verse um, in verse nine, and God said, "Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together to one place, and let the dry land appear." And it was so. Uh, we see that over and over again. It just kind of hits you over the, over the head as you're reading this passage of, about God's power. You see His power clearly displayed. You know, it's not that it's not like God was sort of in a laboratory putting things together. It's not that He was you know piecing the universe together bit by bit like some like as a piece of Ikea furniture, okay? But rather, God is speaking it, right? He says the words, and it is so. That's how he creates. Um, Theologians have referred to this creation, creating everything out of nothing. They refer to it as ex nihilo, okay? Out of nothing. That he creates everything, God has created everything out of nothing, which is an amazing thing. Uh, It's a tremendous testimony to the sovereign power of God. One of my seminary professors, um, uh, wrote a really huge book about the Trinity, okay, and I'm too dumb to understand it. I've kind of piece, you know, pieced through it sometimes, but one of the things he says in that book about God's work of creation is this. He says, the sheer lordship of God nowhere shines more brightly than in the miracle of miracles, his creation of all things out of nothing. Uh, this is the miracle of miracles, creating all things out of nothing, and that this is the Best display of the lordship of God, where it shines the most brightly. So we see God's sovereignty and His power in His. Uh, we also see it in the method of creation, uh, in that He kind of tames the creation. He kind of tames the chaos, and then He fills it. Okay, um, it's, His work of creation follows a very orderly method. Look back with me at verse two. This is what the state of things in the beginning. It says that the earth was without form and void. Now I don't remember a great deal of my Hebrew, uh, unfortunately. I remember some of it, um, and i usually, I have mixed feelings sometimes about pastors who like throw all this Hebrew and Greek out from the pulpit. But I've got to tell you these two Hebrew words because I'll never forget them as long as I live. The words here for for um, void, formless, and void, are tohu and bohu. That's amazing. Okay, you that's that's free of charge right there. Tohu and bohu, uh, formless and void. Uh, that's what, that's what the earth was like, okay? I'm not sure what that means uh, exactly, that, you know, before creation the earth was there. I'm not sure what that means. We're not dealing with that today, okay? But we know that the earth was formless and void. It was without form, and it was empty, okay? It was tohu and bohu. Um, and so what does God do? Well, he gives it form on the first three days of creation, and then he fills it on the second three days of creation. There's a really beautiful symmetry between the days of creation. Um, The first three, he's kind of taming the chaos, giving it form. The second three, he is filling it. So we see on day one, he creates light. On day four, uh, the corresponding day in the second half of the week, he creates the light-giving bodies, the luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars. On day two, he creates the water in the sky. On day five, he fills the water in the sky with fish and birds. On day three, he creates land, dry land. And on day six... He fills the dry land with animals, with human beings. He creates Adam and Eve. And so it's kind of a really interesting thing to see how God has a very orderly, this orderly way of, of creating, that he tames the chaos, he gives it form, and he fills it. And what's also interesting is that when God creates man, he tells them to do the very same thing. Look with me down at verse 28. We see this, and after God had created man and woman, he, and he, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth... And subdue it. And so God is telling them to subdue the earth, right? To give it form. And He's telling them to, to fill it, okay? To, to give it form and to fill it. Uh, just as He had done in creation, but on a smaller scale, that they are to give it, give it form and to fill it, be fruitful and multiply. So there's one thing that's really difficult to miss in Genesis 1, and that is the power and sovereignty of God. This is His world, He has made it. Um, he can do with it as He likes, right? He does not have to answer to anyone. Um, he, it belongs to him. He is in control. And so, creation is a great reminder for us here at the beginning of a new year that he is God and we are not. Okay? God is God, and I am not God, and you are not God. He does not owe us an explanation for anything. Uh, we don't have the power or ability to control all things like he does. Uh, we, we don't have that right. Um, God is in control, he's in control over all things. And that's kind of hard for some of us. Some of us can be very much control-oriented people, right? We want to control the outcome. We want to uh, control the things in our lives as best we can. We want to know exactly what's coming. We want to know exactly what to expect, what's going to happen. Um, we try our best to control sort of all the scenarios. Um, but really, it's just, it's just not possible for us um, because we're not God. We're not able to do that. And so it's best for us to let God be God and for you to be you, for me to be me, He's better at being God than you or me. It's a good reminder for us and one that clearly comes across as we study creation. So we see that God is powerful and sovereign. We also see uh, that creation points us to God's beauty. Okay, now this one may seem a bit odd, describing God as beautiful. Uh, maybe it sounds girly or something, or maybe it sounds, maybe it doesn't make sense, right? God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. How can he be beautiful? How can we describe him that way? Well, I'm not sort of I'm not stepping outside of the Bible to use this description. Um, David himself uses this. Uh, the Bible that speaks of God as being beautiful. Um, listen to this from Psalm 27, verse four. Here's what David says: One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. So David's heart's desire. Is was to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Where do we see God's beauty in Genesis one? Well, we see it everywhere, right? Um, every time, every time God makes something, He declares it to be good. It is good. The light is good. The dry land is good. The animals are good. And when He finishes everything, He surveys the whole, all of His work. He says, "It is very good." Um, The word here used for good can also mean excellent. God is surveying his work and says everything he's made, it is excellent. It is good. It is beautiful. Why did God make everything beautiful? Well, because why did he make everything good and beautiful and excellent? Well, it's because he is good and beautiful and excellent. So when we call God beautiful, what we're saying here is that God possesses everything that is desirable. uh, That he's perfect. That he is to be desired above all else that he is to be delighted in above all else. Um, author, author John Piper argues that God's beauty is a part of his glory. Okay, We often talk about the glory of God, and that means a lot of things, but a part of his glory is his beauty, says John Piper. And he writes this, "...the beauty of God is as pervasive and practical as the glory of God. If we admire the glory of God, we are admiring God's beauty. If the glory of God has an effect in our lives, God's beauty is having an effect." If God acts to magnify his glory, he is acting to magnify his beauty. Now, we know that creation is no longer perfect, right? After Genesis 3, after the fall, uh, that the creation fell along with humanity. We saw that in Romans 8, our our unison reading of Scripture this morning, that that the creation is longing for the day when it will be redeemed, right? The creation is is, uh, groaning in childbirth, in the pains of childbirth, uh, because of the effects of the fall that are on it. Um, but there is still beauty in the creation. Even though the world has fallen, there is still beauty to be found. Um, Shalane and I <clears throat> were traveling last week, and we were driving from Tennessee, West Tennessee, to Western Kentucky, to go, from my family to go visit her family. And we were, it was almost, it was uh, kind of getting sort of late afternoon. And it, I love, like, late afternoon and winter time when the sky is, like, half purple and half blue and it's just this really, it only happens in the winter time, I'm sure there's some scientific explanation for it, I don't know, but uh, but it was just beautiful and I said to someone, like, man, I just love these winter sunsets where the sky is like purple and blue and it just has this unique kind of wintry color to it and it's really nice, it was beautiful um, and I started thinking about I, I have never seen an ugly sunset I've never seen an ugly sunrise okay, every single one, top notch very good um, a friend of mine, actually another another story of creation's beauty. A friend of mine just moved to France to be a missionary, just like literally two days ago moved. And uh, he put a he put a, a Facebook a photo on Facebook yesterday. Uh, it was like a picture out of his front door. He's like in the mountains or somewhere in France, and uh, so he put a picture out of his front door, and it was amazing. It was like in in the distance you could see these French mountains. And uh, right in front of me, everything was covered in snow. There was this big open field that was covered in snow. There was this uh, little French village, okay, off to one side, and it was beautiful. All right, he's suffering for the Lord, clearly. Right? Uh, it was just a, it was a beautiful thing. I was like, man, it's just like out his front door. Um, my parents probably right about now are waking up in Hawaii. Okay, that's that's not a joke. My parents are have taken a little vacation to Hawaii. They've never been, they've never been before. So I texted my mom last night. I said, if so, is Hawaii nice? And she texted me back, three-word response. She said, It is paradise. Uh, it's paradise. That's what she said. That was her description of it. That was all she had to say. Um, Hawaii is beautiful. I imagine, I've never been there. Um, you know, the French snowy countryside is beautiful. The sunsets um, on the you know, Purchase Parkway in western Kentucky are beautiful. There there is beauty to be found in creation. Again, why did God make his creation so beautiful? Was it just to be a nice guy to us? No. He did it because it reflects him. It reflects his character. That he is beautiful. That he is excellent. He is good. He is to be desired above all things. As wonderful and beautiful as creation is, it doesn't compare to the wonder and beauty of God himself. He's better. As Psalm 19 verse 1, a familiar verse says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And what that's telling us is that the that when you see these beautiful sunsets, when you see the beautiful starry sky, that as beautiful and wonderful as it is, it's pointing us to something that is better and more beautiful. It's pointing us to God Himself, the Creator, the one who made it, the one who designed it. Um, the beauty of creation is pointing us; it's declaring the glory of God. It's pointing us to something that's even better. So I hope that we'll make it a point this year that as when you see something beautiful in creation, that you will listen carefully, right? Because it is, it is speaking. It is declaring the glory of its creator. When the grass is green and when the sky is blue, when the sunset is just perfect, remember that it pales in comparison to God. And tell your children that, that this snowflake, if we have any snow, that this snowflake or that this blade of grass or that this starry night is good and beautiful Because God is good and beautiful, and he made it to remind us of that. So creation points us, it points us to God's sovereign power, it points us to his beauty, but finally it points us to his love. Uh, Now one of the attributes of God I think that we're the most familiar with is probably God's love, right? Some of the most famous passages of the Bible uh, relate God's love. John 3.16 is one example. But so how does creation point us to God's love? Well, I think we see the answer in verses 26 and 27. Look with me there, please. We read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over all the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God has made us, he has made human beings in his own image. What does that mean? The word image is an interesting one. It kind of gives the impression that this is like a uh, visible or physical sort of uh, aspect in which we're made in God's image. But that's not quite what's going on here. It's really referring to our likeness or our resemblance to God um, in other ways. That, that we are spiritual beings. Okay, That we are moral beings. Uh, that we can communicate. That we can reason. Uh, that we are relational beings, okay? Th- these are some of the ways, kind of the, some of the primary ways of what it means that we're made in God's image, that we can communicate and reason and, and uh, relate. Uh, those, are, th- those are kind of the, some of the primary ways in which we are image bearers of God. But how is God's creation of us in His image, how is that an act of love? Well, it's simply this, that He made us in His image so that we could be in a relationship with Him. He made us like Him so that we would be in a relationship with Him. You were made to be in a relationship with God. That's why He created you. You were designed for that. And you and I won't be complete. We will not be fulfilled. We will not be satisfied unless we are in a relationship with Him. Uh, when I was a kid, I had, like many children, I had an imaginary friend. Okay, And his name was Joseph. And uh, my imaginary friend... Uh, you know, he liked all the same things that I liked. He liked all the same toys that I liked. He liked the same games that I liked. He didn't like the same food that I didn't like. Okay, I made Joseph to be just like me. All right, and most kids will do that. Most kids, they invent an imaginary friend. They make them just like them. Right? Um, Addie Pearl, perhaps the exception. Um, her first imaginary friend was a bear. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that. But, but for the most part, children will make an imaginary friend who is just like them. And the reason is simple. It's so that they can relate, right? So that, you can rel- I, so that I could relate to my little imaginary friend. He likes the same things I like. He's like me in all these ways. Well, when God designed mankind, when he designed humanity, he made us like him so that we could relate to him, so that we could be in a relationship with him. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed for all eternity in perfect love, perfect harmony, and perfect communion. And at creation, when God is, when God is creating humanity, um, he is inviting us to participate in that love that the Trinity has experienced forever and ever and ever. He is inviting us to be a part of that, to, to share in that. And when the fall happened, it looked like that was not possible anymore. And so the triune God, uh, each member of the Trinity, uh, did their part uh, to, to save and redeem. Uh, that's why Jesus came, to save and redeem us. So that we could be in this relationship with God, so that we could have this thing which we were designed for. So being created in God's image is a really profound idea, uh, especially when we start to think about it sort of outside of ourselves. When we start to think about that not only am I created in God's image, but everyone else is created in God's image as well. And there are many, many ways in which we can apply that, right? When we understand that all human beings are made in God's image, it ought to it ought to make us hate racism, right? It ought to make us weep over abortion. It ought to make us brokenhearted for those who are in poverty, right? To see those image bearers of God who are suffering in these ways. Um, because all people, who, all image bearers of God are worthy of love and dignity. But we can really go a step further with it, too. Um, that... Even, you know, even the racist is made in God's image. Even the abortion doctor is made in God's image. Even the person who's a drug addict on the street who is abusing the system and taking advantage of people, even that person is made in God's image. Of course, that does not excuse the things that they do, but what we're saying is that we've got to figure out how to love these people too. We've got to figure out how to love all people, all those who are made in God's image, all those who are worthy from the best to the worst, all those who... Uh, are image bearers of God, and in some way are worthy of our love, worthy of our care, our compassion as followers and believers of Jesus. More on a personal level, more on a personal level, perhaps. What about that person who just drives you crazy, who, who just drives you insane? Whether it's at work, or you know, you've just, we're just coming off the holidays. You've spent time with family, and there's you know that crazy cousin that you just cannot stand, or something at the family gathering. But whoever it is, that person that you cannot stand, that just makes your skin crawl to be around him. That person is made in God's image. How are are you going to love that person this year as an image bearer of God? How are we going to love those people that are really difficult for us to love? Um, So what does creation tell us about our creator? Well, it tells us that he's sovereign. It tells us that he's beautiful. It tells us that he's loving. But this is just scratching the surface. Creation reflects many of the attributes of God uh, because he has designed it that way, to point us to him. I want to close today with just one kind of final piece of application with how we can kind of think about creation uh, this year. Um, you know, we don't know what 2015 is going to hold. I hope and pray that 2015 holds many wonderful and joyful things for all of us. Uh, but that may not be the case. There may be some major trials ahead for, for many of us this year. And so how can creation be a a help to us or an answer to us in the midst of suffering? Well, very quickly, let's turn to Job chapter 38. Now, you remember in the book of Job, Job experiences a tremendous amount of suffering, um, and Job is kind of asking, why has this suffering fallen upon him? Why have these bad things happened to him? And Job's Friends gather around, and they give him lots of terrible advice. They give him lots of terrible answers about trying to answer his question. Um, But eventually, near the end of the book, God shows up. Uh, Okay, so Job's been asking, Lord, why have these things happened to me? What have I done to deserve this? And Job doesn't really get a clear-cut answer, but I think the the answer that God gives him is very, very interesting. So when Job, uh, God starts to speak to Job in the beginning of chapter 38, and one of the first things he says, we see this in verse 4, God asks him a question. He says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And he goes on to mention more things about creation. Look down with me at verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And down to verse 28. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? And so God is kind of continually pointing Job back to creation. And and that first question, I think, is very important. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? I think what God is saying to Job is this. He's saying, Job, I'm the creator, okay? I'm the one who's in control, not you. God is saying to Job, you don't see what I see. You don't know all the things that I know. I see the whole picture, and you only see a tiny piece of it, Job. And that might sound sort of insensitive, but here's what I think is implied there. That God is saying to Job, there are things that you don't understand. There are things that you're just going to have to trust me with, okay? You have to trust me. You weren't there when I laid the foundation of the earth. I did that alone. And so you're going to have to trust me in this particular thing in your life as well. And that's what God is saying to us in Genesis 1. That he is the creator, right? That he alone is the creator, not us. That when we look at the glory and beauty of creation, he is saying, I am God and you are not. And now you need to trust me. I did all of this without your help. I can take care of you as well. Trust me. Genesis 1 is telling us that God has a plan for the world and for humanity. A plan that ought to give us hope and courage to face the adventure of life, always entrusting ourselves to him. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are our creator. We thank you that you um, display your power and your beauty and your love in your creation. We thank you that uh, you are God, that we are not. Lord, help us this day, this week, this year to entrust ourselves to you, knowing that you are fully capable to handle uh, all things that come across our path, O Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.